Welcome to the first episode of Conservation Crosstalk, a podcast about environmental issues, biodiversity, and sustainability. This podcast is presented by the Capel High School Eco Club, an organization promoting environmental sustainability, awareness, and responsible action in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Hello, I'm Ruther K. I am Mihir C. Hello, I am Abhinav Y. And so let's start off by answering an important question. Why did we create this podcast? We created this podcast because we understand that the main step in, uh, for people to understand uh, how they can help uh, solve the environmental problems is to have awareness about their own contributions to earth and the environment. So we wanted to help people understand this by sharing anecdotes, uh, stories, and facts about uh, environmental problems and solutions around us. So we also want to target some uh, environmental issues that we feel are important and also kind of provide some potential solutions that we can go over during this podcast on how you can help out along with your friends, family, and other people that you know about. So without further ado, let's get started. So human interaction with environment comes in many forms and locations. Let's start somewhere that immediately doesn't come to your mind. Can you think? It's your stomach. And on your skin. And on about 40% of the Earth's land. Yes, we are talking about agriculture and sustainability, agricultural practices. So first of all, let's start with this. Why is sustainable agriculture important? So feeding a growing population while taking care of the natural environment is an essential issue that we have to overcome. And without uh, taking in the practices of sustainable agriculture, our population will continue to grow without there being enough food to feed us. And if that happens, then there will be war, strife, among uh, various other factors that could influence the downfall of various nations. Okay, Abhinav, so in the AP Human Geography, we learned about this person named Thomas Malthus, and he talked about something very similar to this, where the human population keeps on growing. So then the food, popula- the food production won't be able to keep up with that. But so far, has that really ever happened in history? Hmm. Yes, it has happened, especially in olden times. But upon the Green Revolution in the 1980s or so, uh, food production changed dramatically to help feed a growing population. However, was this agriculture sustainable? For example, we see that there is unsustainable agriculture in much of the world. You know, we look at increased pesticide usage and deforestation in places like the Amazon, just to make space for crop farming and animal ranching. So it's, even if there's agriculture to feed people, is it really sustainable? And how can we make it more sustainable? So as we have seen before, people have come up with various uh, practices to increase the sustainability of our agriculture. For example, we've seen crop rotation that helps uh, increase the health of soil and pest control. And also there's soil protection with windbreaks and cover crops that reduce erosion and maintain nutrients. And then we also have no-till agriculture. And with all of these different practices, we have seen that we can come up with ways to create more sustainable agriculture. Yes, but all, when we mention more, uh, sustainable agriculture, how do these things contribute? For example, when we see windbreaks and cover crops, they're like crops that you grow, they're plants that serve no pr- uh, food product, 
purpose when it comes to food production or textile creation, but they are there to protect other crops. For example, in areas with high winds, there will be windbreaks to protect uh, commercially viable crops. So we can see that these don't need, we don't need to drastically alter the natural environment uh, to help increase food production and uh, increase agriculture in general. Rather, we can do it through more sustainable methods. This all ties into the founding idea of agroecology, so, uh, which is the treatment of agricultural enterprises as ecosystems. But what exactly does that mean in this scenario? I'm not too sure, but so we were talking about agriculture and then we were talking about a lot of crops, but we didn't mention in the beginning that animals are also part of, are part of, are part of this. I think Abhinav was talking about ranches. So there's this thing where like, you can start raising insects instead of conventional animals like cows or pigs, because they have a smaller footprint, use much less resources and provide comparable nutritional value like crickets, for example. Mm -hmm. And that all ties into the general idea of agroecology. Uh, for example, when we grow certain crops, uh, we have to understand their effects on the environment. Uh, for example, when we're harvesting in insect populations, instead of just treating it like a commercial enterprise, like agriculture is treated a lot these days, we also have to see how it impacts the environment. How are the predators of those insects impacted? How is, uh, will the, if the insect gets loose, will it be an invasive species, etc. And one important facet of uh, agroecology is also the treatment of uh, uncultivated areas. For example, if an area is prone to flooding, then the wetlands and floodplains uh, are an important part of the ecosystem, even if they aren't directly maintained. So let's quickly go back to Mihir's point. Um, as we know it today, uh, animals won't be able to satisfy uh, the human population as it keeps on growing. And with the demand of meat also rising, that means that we need more animals to, as, to be raised as livestock. And with that, we also need more crops to feed those animals, which all means that we just need more space in general. And that's a big problem because right now, as the human population expands, the demand for space also increases uh, in, for that reason. But with also the demand of meat rising, we need more space for animals. And not only that, but this demand for more space and also more animals means more greenhouse emissions coming from those livestock. And all of that contributes to unsustainable agriculture. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have to address today. Yeah, and adding on that, we see that uh, actually some of the world's crops such as corn and soybeans majority of them don't go towards human consumption or use as biofuels. They go towards animal feeding, which uh, this has a great impact on the water table. For example, already the production of meat uh, uses a lot of water to uh, feed the animals and keep them hydrated, but it also impacts their food sources. Therefore, animal operations and also many conventional plant operations require great amounts of water usage. So how can this be combated to prevent droughts and other uh, natural disasters? For example, uh, this actually has a very real application. For example, the Oglala Aquifer in much of the central and Midwestern United States, there's even some in the Panhandle of Texas, and that is getting dried up quickly because of use in ranching operations in the Panhandle and in uh, throughout the Dakotas, etc. in that area of the Midwest. So how can we do this? We can reduce meat operations. Uh, and then we can also, when it comes to pl plants, we can plant hardier crops and varieties of crops that with genes that protect against drought 
and plants that need less water. We can also reduce irrigation uh, to help maintain the health and stability of the aquifers and maintain soil salinity. Another thing is if space is a concern, we could, one option we could, like, it would be hard to do because if we really know how to do it, it would have been done already, but undoing desertification. So I've seen one method kind of doing it. I don't know if it's been proven is using compost to start undoing the desertification. So if we like undesertify the locations in Texas, would that be able to mitigate our food space problems? So, yes, I, yeah, I'll, I'll, you go. Okay, yeah. So basically what I wanted to say was that uh, even if we do like do the um, undesertification idea, the problem is even with that uh, space, the demand for meat will continue to rise as the human population grows, right? So even if we do have more space, uh, there's only a limit to how much space that is. And once the demand for like livestock passes that, then we'll be out of other options. So as Ruder was saying before, like we really need to take care of our unsustainable agriculture practices concerning meat production. Yeah, uh, especially also adding on both of your ideas, we see that in the process of undesertification, the new land means nothing if we don't develop it properly. It's uh, in the, for example, if we keep, if we grow crops or if raise animals in new land, but add a bunch of fertilizers to it, then still runoff will occur and still nitrates and phosphates will kill marine ecosystems and still the problems will happen. It's not just about having new land. It's also about maintaining that land so it can be productive and used again. For example, there are some crops that naturally replenish the soil and, uh, and can be used in off periods if the soil is depleted. Uh, so this is an integral part of crop rotation where different crops are grown over the time span uh, for different periods in order to help replenish the soil and make sure that uh, the land is managed sustainably. So yeah, I just wanted to add that. It's not you know, more than creating new land. It's important that land is managed properly. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair point. If we get more land somehow and keep on continuing the unsustainable practices, we're just increasing the amount of unsustainable practices. One thing I'd like to add on the meat thing though is we're getting pretty advanced in like creating flavors. There's this Japanese university or inventor, I don't remember exactly, but they developed a way to replicate taste some similar to like on computers, we can get images by having RGB channels. There's like this taste device, which uses the five flavors like bitter, sour, salt, salty, umami, and whatever the fifth one was, I don't remember. But so if we can increase, oh wait, what am I trying to say? So let's say we can perfectly replicate the taste of meat without actually having to need animals. Would people still be fine with that? Do they need the actual animal or would the, just the taste be good enough? That's uh, a very interesting point. And also, uh, yeah, uh, it raises future questions. I think uh, there's a lot more to go with the discussion, but in the interest of time, I think we should move on to our next topic. Abhinav, can you introduce that? Yeah, sure. So basically our next topic is water pollution. And we kind of went over this in our sustainable agriculture with water contamination, but there is a big issue surrounding water pollution from uh, plastics to their impacts on wildlife. And one key example is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And actually 65 or 66% actually of the plastic from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch 
actually comes from uh, plastic nets, which poses the question, do the, does the fishing industry uh, negative, like is the fishing industry detrimental to the plastic pollution that we see in the water, in our oceans? Yeah, One I would is, agree. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's kind of like the tragedy of the commons, uh, which is basically where if everyone contributes, if everyone overuses the commons or acts in their own interest, then the group as a whole suffers. For example, if everyone uses, uh, starts fishing and tossing out a net, maybe one net, in my worst case, it kills one animal and then the health of the ecosystem is still preserved. But when everyone thinks that way, then the whole ecosystem and the whole commons as a whole suffers because animals and plants and the whole food chain is getting disrupted. And it might not just be just the fishing industry. The thing with water pollution is if there's trash that ends up in water, it can move a great distance. That's like the main reason why the great garbage patch is the thing it is. So what if it's just due to like people in cars that are next to bodies of water that are just throwing their trash into that? Yeah, so like I agree. Um, obviously humans other than like in the fish, uh, fishing industry do contribute to the plastic that we see in our oceans. And in fact, about like 8 million tons of plastic are introduced every year into our oceans. And this is also a problem that all of humanity contributes to. But as we can see with fishing nets and other fishing gear, also known as ghost gear, because they can trap and kill animals, even if humans aren't directly using them. Uh, those are all uh, problems that do kill hundreds of thousands of marine animals every single year. And that's like one of the issues that we have to fix. Yeah, and it's kind of like that thing at the beginning of movies, like piracy is the victim, uh, isn't a victimless crime. Like ocean, uh, like ocean pollution isn't a victimless crime for humans either. For example, when you have, uh, when you throw plastics into the ocean uh, or plastic products, then they can get broken down into smaller pieces called microplastics, which fish can eat. And slow, and when this, these microplastics eventually accumulate in uh, the foods humans eat, if they're eating seafood or things like that, uh, which causes, uh, which can cause health problems and uh, so uh, and other issues. So at the end of the day, whatever we do to the ocean, it isn't a victimless crime for us, as they say. Yeah. So like going based off like um, how it can also impact us humans, these microplastics also can contribute to the increased likelihood of cancer, and also the probability of uh, damaging. A spinal cord and liver, and millions of humans actually can die to these, you know, like water pollution-related causes. So water pollution isn't something that affects our marine life, but it can also affect each and uh, each of us as like a total human population. I'm trying to think of like what are ways individuals can help with water pollution. So the one thing that comes to mind is beach cleanups. But other than beach cleanups, what ideas do you guys have about how an individual can contribute? Uh, of course, there's also uh, like community action. Uh, help uh, try. If one important thing people can do is uh, like organize a rally or a protest or sign a, get a bill signed to help limit the amount of pollutants uh, companies can put out. Because, uh, for example, some... Um, plants in certain industries put out toxic chemicals like mercury and this collects to the bottom of the ocean floor uh, animals eat them it turns into a hazardous compound called methyl mercury 
And finally, it accumulates on top of uh, predators to such an extent that some species of fish are just not safe to eat uh, by humans because their mercury content is so high from biomagnification. So, uh, so if people understand that the issue just isn't just the uh, does it impacts uh, humans also, then perhaps they'd be more likely to contribute. So just help people understand about uh, the uh, what they can do to help, uh, especially through legal actions, uh, asking for the help of others, and do hands more hands-on work like as you said cleanups uh, or working maybe with wildlife crews uh, after like oil spills, uh, things like that. Yeah, so I also wanted to add on, um, if you didn't, if you don't like have that much time and you can't like contribute to these activities currently and do all this hands-on work, you can always contribute in indirect ways. Uh, one example is through an organization known as Ocean Cleanup. And this uses uh, technological innovations to clean up plastics and other materials. So you can just like look into different nonprofits and charities that help with these uh, environmental issues and can deal with water pollution. So these are just other indirect ways that you can contribute. Yeah, now let's move to our final thing, uh, current issues. So the current issue we decided to focus on for this episode is recently an oil pipeline was hacked uh, and then the uh, supply from Houston to the Eastern seaboard was shut down. So, and then that got me thinking, like, if gasoline is such an important commodity in the United States uh, to run our cars, et cetera, so what is the, so if gasoline is so important, how can we transition to a more renewable future when it comes to automobiles? Like, how do we make that transition and why, and then how can renewable energy vehicles make a larger market entry in this case? Like, how can they, and how can they get a bigger foothold? Because we know they've been around for some time. This is hard because like, getting a huge collective change is hard so like with power outlets for example there are like two versions of the power outlets one was i forgot the people who made that i think it was edison and someone else do you know who made them uh no i, don't I think, think so it was ac okay whatever the point was there were like two power types uh, we could have in the u.s but we chose one and that's the one every house used if we tried to switch all of that that would be too much of a hassle take too much time so if right now, majority of the people use gasoline cars, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the only really way to get most people to transition to electric cars is to force them, I guess, with a law or something. Otherwise, people, there's no reason for people to change if we keep on having like gas stations. But if more like electric car stations open up, then it might be a possibility. Like I would agree, but eventually we are going to have to shift, right? The transition to renewable energies is already happening, as you can see with all these electric cars. Um, but gas won't be there forever. And that's one of the major reasons that people are switching because gas is, uh, as you know, a non-renewable energy and we will eventually run out of it. And as we do, the gas prices will definitely increase. And with that, more people would be like, I guess, more interested in buying a cheaper alternative, which will be the renewable energies. Yeah. One, one clarification to me is like electricity doesn't immediately mean it's um, renewable because electricity is like a second part of the step. You can have either like wind turbines or like other sources of renewable energy creating electricity, but you can also have non-renewable sources like fossil fuels and natural gas creating electricity. 
but the benefit with electric cars is they don't use gasoline. Yeah, and also you, both of you touched on this, but I think the main issue is like, uh, is it that there are no support systems like electric car charging stations in place because no one's buying electric vehicles? Or is it the other way around? People aren't buying the vehicles because there's no support system in place. So that's just something I was considering because if I'm, dri- if I'm driving an electric car through like a rural part of the country and then the car runs out of charge, then uh, I don't know what to do. However, if I'm, if I'm driving a gasoline car and the same thing happens, I could easily like get somehow get it to a near the nearest gas pump or something like that. So that's just something to consider. Uh, so what do you guys think about that? So do you think it's like the supply problem or there's no supply because there's no no one's buying it or less people are buying it? I think it's a both. I think it's basically what I was saying earlier. Hmm. Yeah, like I mean, it's kind of like a cycle, you know. Uh, you wouldn't be able to exactly get those like ports out if there aren't enough people buying it. But at the same time, you won't have that many people buying it uh, if you don't have those like electric ports. So it kind of like creates this never ending cycle. And the major way like to improve this is to get, I guess, some form of government investment into it. And also like those private companies like um, to also like increase these electric ports so that we can get more electric cars out. And another problem is that um, right now, the efficiency of these cars can definitely be improved. And it, there aren't really that many cheap electric cars, I believe. So I, I feel like that's uh, like another major issue. Yeah. But that's... when we do get to that point, I think one thing that can help with the transition is maybe having a fine for using gasoline cars or cars that emit carbon gases and greenhouse gases. Yeah, like yeah. a tax. Like the Seattle trash tax. Yeah. Or uh, another, yeah, Abhinav uh, touched, uh, both of you actually touched on like government intervention in this. So I think one other thing they could do is uh, also make all government funded for or city funded forms of transportation. For example, the DART system of public transportation, uh, transition that all to electric or fuel cell. And then if they have like a bus going across, uh, across the state, then they can, install uh, charging ports or fuel cell pumps, uh, hydrogen pumps for fuel cells or whatever is necessary for that. So if they build support systems in place for elect for government things, then and also have it open to the public, then I feel like the public would be more willing to participate since the government is sponsoring support systems. And another thing is we can't rely on innovation to solve all the problems because innovation takes time and it's random and erratic. You can't predict when it's going to happen. So when we're finding solutions, we got to figure out what we can do like immediately to do stuff about this. Yeah, like I definitely agree uh, because like we need technological in, uh, innovation, sure. But like we also need more interest in these uh, non like these the transition from non-renewable to renewable energy. So we also need to get more interest and awareness about this topic and I guess get a better understanding of the problems of, I guess, just being fixated on using non-renewable energies like oil and gas. Yeah, and that's why, uh, so yeah, I agree with all of that. It's, while it's also important that it, people like switch and understand the benefits of doing so, it's also a large like paradigm change or mindset change. People have to understand that even like the 
black smoke that comes out of their tailpipe, even no matter how small it may seem compared to everything else, it still has a difference. And if they change, then other people will. Yep. And another thing going on with individual stuff and the masses is like how many, how much is the US population? Uh, around like 3.5 million, uh, three, uh, no, 300, 350 million. Yeah. So let's say like half of them are, are adults with driving cars. So that's about 125 million. So even if your car is emitting like a small amount of greenhouse gases, multiply that by 125 million and then see if that's a lot. Yeah. And yeah. Plus, like you have the entire world, to, uh, the entire world to think about. And with all these developing countries that are like transitioning to more developed countries, the amount of gas that each country is going to be using with their extra population means that it's like gas is going to, the demand for gas is going to skyrocket unless we transition into these renewable energy vehicles and stuff. Yeah. Uh, also, I saw a statistic like uh, in the last, maybe like 50 years ago or something, the amount of gas, uh, oil and gas discoveries to the amount of extraction was like a six to one ratio. Now it's the exact opposite as well. Where for every like one unit of gas or oil we're discovering, it's like six that we're extracting. So, uh, we, if we haven't hit peak oil or basically where half the world supply is used up, we're going to do so pretty soon. So that just makes it all the more imperative that it's easy that we have to switch over, and that requires both uh, individual and collective effort. Another thing going on with the undeveloped countries is developed countries can't ask undeveloped countries to use these renewable energy sources that produce less than the non-renewable energy sources like coal and fossil fuels. Instead, the developing countries should be the role model and be using efficient and mostly non-renewable, I mean, renewable energy sources and be the example for the developing countries. Yeah, that's a great point. I agree. Yeah, like based on that, just going off it, we can't really, I guess, you know, tell them, hey, don't use these uh, non-renewable energy sources because obviously they would want to do that. And they cite that, you know, developed countries have done that for, you know, hundreds of years. So why can't they too? Yeah, and how are they going to develop? Yeah, so like that that's basically like a big problem. So in order to like overcome that, we need to like show that this renewable, these like renewable energy sources can be efficient and helpful. And we also need to like kind of give them that confidence by doing it ourselves. Yeah, and these are all great points when regard when understanding uh, vehicles and how we can switch from gasoline to electric or fuel cell or other more renewable forms. So all in all, that concludes episode one of Conservation Crosstalk. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe, hit the like notification bell, you know the deal. Uh, and thank you all for listening. And we hope you come back in two weeks to catch episode two. We made it.